So when you enter the lives of a, of a customer or a client that you serve, um, you're also not a character in that story. And so you have these two narratives coming together. And if you can't articulate in a crisp and compelling way why those stories belong together, they're going to hire somebody else. much for joining us for another episode we've got a great one in store for you in case you happen to miss the last episode here's a quick snippet and then we will get on to the show when you come from a place like where i came from which was a very uh, sort of non-profit heavy um, nine to five institutional mindset employee mindset and then you know migrate on over to the entrepreneur space when somebody says well the best way to grow your business is to build relationships one-on-one, take the time to, to, you know, sow the right seeds and build it from the ground up. That seems like almost counterintuitive. It's like, no, I want to reach as many people as possible. I want to help as many people as possible. I want to, you know, grow and scale. I think it's uh, real exciting to have somebody like yourself, you know, joining us in terms of uh, the clients that you've helped. Uh, so for those that don't know, so today we have uh, with us Ron Carucci. Ron has had clients including Citibank, Corning Inc., Hershey Company, Bristol Myers Squibb, Deutsche Bank, ConAgra Foods, Del Monte Foods, McDonald's Corporation, Starbucks, Microsoft, Cadbury, uh, Miller Brewing, PricewaterhouseCoopers, uh, Johnson & Johnson. And today he's here to speak with us about a few things related to business, entrepreneurship, and really a lot of different things related to that. So that being said, Ron, would you like to just introduce yourself to everybody? Yeah, you bet. So um, nice to meet you all. Um, I am managing partner and co-founder of a firm called Navalent. Um, we're a boutique consulting firm, and we spend our days, like today, traipsing the hallways of all kinds of organizations, from startup to mid-cap to global growth and maturity, helping organizations and their leaders sort of um, find their way through some type of transformative change, whether it's accelerated growth or whether they've got themselves in some kind of a ditch and they need to get out, or strategically they have to pivot, or culturally they need to overhaul, or um, they haven't got the leadership muscles they need to do what's in, uh, in front of them. So wh- whatever transformative path they're being invited to, we, we accompany them on that journey. That's phenomenal. So tell us, we'll get into some more of the details of how you do that, uh, and really some of the other resources like your books that you've, you've written to be able to help teach that and help others. Tell us, what's your story? So how did you get going down this road, and what were some of the challenges that you met? What were some of the most interesting parts to it? Tell us a little more of your story. Gosh, so I, I began my career in the arts. I began my career you know, 30-something years ago in a very different field uh, and quickly learned that I bored easily, uh, that while I was training for a discipline that was um, exciting and for many a very um, desirable field, for me, I, I, I get these great jobs and my friends would be like, wow, what a great job. And I'd be like, wow, I have to do the same thing eight times a week for how long? 
Uh, and I, so I, I, I learned that I was probably not going to thrive for 30, 40, 50 more years. Um, and I was, um, so I took a job with a company and I was working overseas uh, in Europe. And we were doing a workshop of all places at Dachau. Uh, diversity and inclusion wasn't a term back then, but I think had it been a term, that would have been the top subject of the work, workshop. And we used all, all kinds of media and arts to do our teaching. Um, and uh, we had in the room military, civilians, Germans, Americans, State Department officials, a variety of people who were having to work together that were struggling to do so. And in the middle of the workshop, a young soldier, probably not much older than I, uh, raised his hand and he said, I'm just so tired of being trained to hate. And I was, my first thought was, well, I can't believe something we presented up here made him think that. But more fundamentally, I think what struck me was the fact that I, I was stuck between two different careers. One was a career of telling great stories, and the other was this career I was now in, which was engaging other people in their own story, um, which felt much more exciting to me, something I would probably never get bored of doing and could leave much more of an impact on the world doing. And I think I look back on that moment, I don't think I knew it at the time because I was in my early 20s, but I think I realized wow, this is where I belong. Uh, and I, that began a, a long pivot uh, into um, organization development, organization psychology, the field I'm in now, uh, and have done that for 30-some years. I spent a bunch of years doing it inside organizations. Um, but, you know, as you know, ancient wisdom says you can't be a prophet in your own land, uh, and that's true for a reason. And so when I began doing this work inside companies, um, I naively believed that, all politics aside, the insights that I was there to generate, the improvements I was there to help um, enact, they actually wanted. Um, but, but turns out I wasn't always right, and I was probably not as politically savvy as I should have been at that time in my career. And so I began to collect up these things that my children got very excited about because to them it meant more time with dad. I began collecting severance packages. Uh, and really what I was learning was that what got me in political trouble inside companies, telling the truth, um, got me paid pretty well outside companies. And so I think at some point I figured out, you know what, if I'm gonna, if I'm gonna express my love and passion for organizations and my real, in thrilling uh, fascination with organization and of human endeavor at scale uh, in organizations, it's gonna have to be by not being part of one. Uh, and so I went to the external world and then joined a, a wonderful consulting firm and began to help organizations as an outsider, which was a much more uh, productive way for me to embody this in the way I wanted, because integrity and telling the truth is important to me and telling people what needs to be said whether they want to hear it or not, is important to me. Um, not colluding with leaders uh, to keep things covered up is important to me. And so uh, being a free agent uh, enables you a little bit more of a passport to do that than sometimes being an insider does. Uh, and so I did that with a consulting firm for about eight years. And then about 15 years, 14 years ago, uh, a couple of friends and I started Navalent. Well, very, very interesting. Uh, I'd like 
to hear a little bit about the storytelling uh, as it relates to uh, what you what you were were doing in terms of for uh, really telling stories, and then you, you mentioned what I think is really interesting about the stories and the narratives that people that you're working with to influence change with that you need to tap into to help them with. Maybe I think so. One of the things we have a big community of just of entrepreneurs. And having the idea of understanding how to convey, you know, yourself and what you're trying to do in a narrative form, and trying to understand how to communicate that, uh, and keeping the narrative and story of the of the people that you're communicating with in mind is something that's a big challenge uh, for a lot of people. Can you speak a little bit on the elements of a story and the elements of the the narrative that we need to keep in mind when interacting with other people? Well, I think I think as on you know, so as entrepreneurs we are in the middle of our own story. And sometimes we're so busy being in that story, we don't ever take time to step on and work on writing the story. Um, and sometimes it, the, the hardest part about being a leader of an organization is to realize you're curating a bigger story um, for the people that you employ and for the customers that you serve. Um, uh, and you're also having your story intersect with theirs, right? So when you enter the live of a, of a customer, or a client that you serve, um, you're also not a character in that story. And so you have these two narratives coming together. And if you can't articulate in a crisp and compelling way why those stories belong together, they're gonna hire somebody else. And especially if you can't articulate that story in a way that's compelling and distinct, because whatever they would choose you, there's 20 other of you they could choose from. And so one of the things I, I find that most entrepreneurs struggle with when it comes to knowing the narrative of their own stories, they've never done the work to articulate it. You know, whenever I walk into an organization that's in the startup phase, like I'm where I am today in California, when I ask the question, so tell me your strategy, I get all kinds of counterfeits. I get uh, a product quota. I get a mission statement. I get a vision statement. I get the values. I get, uh, here's the product term sheet. Uh, or here's the business plan we used to get our Series B funding. I don't get a statement of identity. I don't get a statement of, here's why people would pick us over somebody else. Here's our story. Here's who we are. Um, and until you've answered those fundamental questions of identity and can stick to that swim lane. So I mean, one of the most painful words for any entrepreneur to say is no. They, they struggle with narrowing their focus and sticking to a story. Um, and whenever I ask about strategy, one of the common responses is, oh, we're too small for that strategy stuff. That's for big companies, which of course is delusion. You're never too small to set direction uh, for the people who, who are on your journey with you, whether there's three of you or 300 of you. So defining that story, defining who you serve, why you serve them, why they would pick you, what makes you different, what makes you special, uh, what are you betting on? What are you investing in that if you put a dollar in, five hours comes back in the door? Um, those are the important parts of who your story, who you are to the world, who you want to be to the world. It may be aspirational, but at least it's a statement of something. It's a stake in the ground. Um, that way, when you enter the story of, of a potential customer or prospect, you immediately know, well, we may be the wrong person for you. Or if we are the right person for you, it's because I recognize the problem or challenge or opportunity you're facing. And I know why I'm the right one just to help you achieve it or solve it. Uh, and at the end of the day, that's what business is. It's the merging of two stories, you know, someone with a need and someone who can meet that need uh, coming together in a great new chapter 
for both of them. Um, but if you can't articulate that in the most crisp, compelling, provocative way, um, you're probably going to struggle. Now, what what would you recommend are would be the the ways to go about structuring that so that it is compelling and somebody that doesn't have a clue or at this point is scared to niche things down because they're scared of losing uh in this case how do you approach that what would you recommend you you, you know you've got to you've got to get your fundamentals of distinction you know on what basis are you competing you know if you're a dry cleaner or a website developer or a content marketer or you're running uh, an accounting bookkeeping firm. It doesn't really matter what you do. Somebody else in your neighborhood, in your city, on your block is doing the same thing. So when people who would spend money or who have a need for what you have are gonna consider the options available to them, if you can't really say, well, here's why I'm better than them. Here, and, and not just in words only, but in, in actual provable facts, here's the evidence that suggests I can do this better than you. Here are the three or four things I have bet uh, my little firm, venture, company on that sets me apart from them. It's service, it's price, it's creativity, it's responsiveness, it's, um, it's cutting edge technology, it's being innovative, it's some version of, and typically what most entrepreneurs fail to do is they define that distinction and what they think is special about it. You know, so often you, entrepreneurs find out a year or two in, they get shocked to find out that the thing that they were selling is not what their customers are buying. They think they're selling, you know, this really cool mythic technology gadget widget, and what their customers are buying is free access to your information or your data, right? So you have to define that value for the people who would pay you money in a way that they define it as valuable, not the way you, what you think is cool about what you do, but what's important to them. So start by out, outside in saying, who's the person you want to come through your front door? What are they doing? What are they, what are they facing? What are they needing? Um, how would they define the pain they're in or the opportunity they're trying to go after? And how would you describe what it is you do uh, that would make you the most compelling choice for them to choose? Whether that's on a piece of paper, on a whiteboard, uh, in a, some kind of a template that says, you know, business model or strategy map, articulate, and that's the, one of the shitty parts about, pardon my French, uh, strategy, is that we have to use words. It would be so nice if we could use pictures or something else, but sometimes words can be very limiting, and so language matters, especially if you're going to be hiring a whole bunch of other people, you have to enroll in the story as characters in it, you have to have ways to help them and quickly graft into the story in a clear way. <clears throat> so often you, you watch startups go from 10 people, 20 people, to 50 people, to 100 people, and you just get increasing levels of confusion because they haven't articulated the story you're coming onto. So everybody has their own version of it, right? So everybody's off doing their own thing, making up the story they think they're supposed to be part of, and you have mayhem. Uh, instead of a real cohesive, unified force. Okay, that, that leads me to one of the questions I was thinking about as you, as you were speaking there about this. So once you identify that, obviously as you start to scale, there become more, more challenges with that. And so it sounds like with your focus on leadership and organizational change, uh, really when you're looking at a company that's starting up and growing, 
or that's kind of existing and is having some challenges. Um, so where, where do you think some of the, the bigger points are that you find that you need to work with with somebody that's running a business or trying to scale a business when it comes to managing this and uh, managing some of the, I guess, the discord that's there? Uh, you know, what are some of the bigger challenges and, and how, do you, how do you go about uh, working on that? Well, once, so once you, let's, let's fast forward the story and imagine that somebody has done a great job of articulating their, their differentiation. You know, they've chalked the fiddle in their own story. Well, the next thing you have to do is organize the work to fit that, right? So what many entrepreneurs don't begin to, they begin to learn the hard way is that not all work is created equal. Every single task being done in your business is not equally as important. There are some work that's, that's your competitive work. It's the direct work that when you perform it, it's the work that sets you apart. So if you've listed out three or four, here's what differentiates me, this is the work that makes that happen. It's the work that if you invest a dollar in getting better at it, you're gonna get money in the door you know, times three or four or five. And there's work that supports that work, the things that enable that competitive work. And together, your competitive and your enabling work probably account for maybe 35% of all the work in your business. Then there's the necessary work. You don't have to be better at than anybody else. It keeps the lights on, keeps you in compliance, keeps you out of jail. That's about 65% of your work. Well, the problem becomes that when you mix them up and the same people or the same group is doing competitive work and necessary work, well, we all know what happens, right? The necessary work is the fire on your head. That takes up all the attention. The competitive work gets pushed off. And so you're diluting your competitive distinctions by not separating out and protecting the competitive work from the urgency of the necessary work. So separating out the work and grouping it and keeping it quarantined but then coordinating it is, is the work of organization design. That's how you have to you know, step out of your business long enough to work on it and really think about how should this work be separated? What kind of talent do I need to do it? You want your competitive work to be organized for maximum impact. The best talent, the most effective way to do it, the most um, pro, you know, impactful way to do it. You want your necessary work to be organized for maximum efficiency. You know, the cheapest, most inexpensive way to get it done, hyper-automated, technological, even if you have to outsource it, you know, just do it at parity. And those are very different types of things. And so if you don't even know which work goes where, if you haven't done the work to sort of separate out the work that makes you competitively distinct, it's all gonna look the same to you and you're gonna treat it as if it's all the same and you're gonna resource it as if it's all the same. Very good. So, so tell us. So, you have a you you have quite a few books actually written. I know you've done a, a few TED talks, and obviously you've spoken and consulted with a lot of uh, you know very reputable companies. So, here when I was taking a look at some of the books, you know your most recent book, you know, Rise to Power: The Journey of Exceptional Executives, The Value Creating Consultant. I think that may have been one of your earlier uh, books, two thousand. Uh, Relationships that enable enterprise change. Acclaim leadership dividend. What emerging leaders need and what you might be missing and leadership stories from tomorrow. So all very interesting. I think we could probably spend hours really talking about concepts that are in there, but just taking, I guess, from, I guess the most recent book, uh, can you tell us a little bit about, about that? Is this more of a, I guess, a culmination of all these other books? Is it another particular area and how did you get started? And what would you say the primary sort of takeaways that you, you want to get people dialed into with it are? So um, Rising to Power began in a moment of pain. Um, we've known for 20 years plus that leaders rising up in organizations or rising up in life 
to assume broader levels of responsibility, about half of them or more fail in the first 18 months. Um, it's a pretty staggering statistic. Well, it got very personal when it happened to somebody I was working with in a company that we had done a big transformational project on. And in, in the middle of that project, this young leader had truly set himself apart. Everybody knew him to be smart. Everybody knew him to be, you know, having tremendous potential. So when he got a much bigger role at the end of our project, nobody was surprised. And about 10 months later, he called, and I assumed he was calling to say, hey, here's what we're up to, how are you doing? But he was calling to tell me he'd been fired. And I was winded. I literally was, could barely gasp, like, how could that have happened? Well, a couple of hours later, uh, the CEO called to also let me know they had to let him go and was pretty angry, like inferring that more than subtly that some of the responsibility for his failure was mine for not having better prepared him. And of course, that was devastating to hear. And I asked if we might come back in just to sniff around at, you know, at our own time and time to see if we could find out what could have gone wrong. How could we have so badly misjudged his, his, his potential? And that short investigation led to a 10-year longitudinal study with more than 2,700 interviews to understand how is it we have been watching people rise up in organizations and flame out. Uh, they, they go from the middle of the organization or you know, on, on an ascent of being potentially terrific to all of a sudden being a disaster. How is it? How has that been okay for so long? We can do better. And so the rising to power is about that journey upward, uh, about the landmines, so many landmines that get put in the way of leaders on their way up, how to avoid them, and most importantly, how do you stick the landing? So one of the, the wonderful things about the data uh, that we discovered was not just what's causing the half that are failing to fail, but what are the other half doing? How, what, how is it they're rising up and sticking the landing? What is it they're doing to set them apart to allow them to be successful in broader roles of responsibility so we were able to isolate the dimensions that truly set the exemplars apart and describe how it is you go about learning? Interesting. Now, how, what would you say in terms of the applicability, say, to this to a large organization or a large enterprise to say a smaller organization or a mid-sized organization, some of those takeaways, how would they relate to the size of the company and where they're at? So I think that we found them to be universal. Whether you're somebody in the world who just wants to have more influence in the world um, or somebody who wants to be a CEO one day. So the first of the four was context. This is the ability to read the TVs around you, the ability to ask yourself questions about why something is the way it is. It's not about having the answers and slapping the answers on. It's about being curious. It's about recognizing that if you have ideas you want others to adapt, if you have a direction you want others to go in, you have to adapt yourself uh, to them as much as you have to do this change in them. So whether you're an individual solopreneur trying to influence people or you are you know, aspiring to be the top of an enterprise uh, of $20 billion, um, you have to be able to read context. You have to be able to look at what's happening around you and be curious about why it's happening that way before you try and influence it. The second was breadth. So whether you're in a neighborhood or a community or a family um, or in a, a growing organization, fragmentation is natural. We, we, look, we look today in a, in a politically polarized world. Fragmentation and retrenchment is happening by the day. People are pulling apart. It's people are, are retrenching, they're isolating. Uh, we've seen loneliness become one of the greatest sources of discontent in the workplace. Um, it's because people are, are hunkering down. 
um, connection is harder and harder to make. Ironically, you know, in the days of social media, people are losing intimacy, not gaining it. Breadth was the ability to bring people together, you know, across functions, across borders, across any kind of seam, um, the ability to bring people to connect them, the ability to build bridges. Third was choice. You know, so one of the surprising findings in the research was that the greatest abuse of power we found was not people using it for self-interest. It was the abandonment of it. It was people too fearful to use the power and putting it down. They didn't like to say no and disappoint people. Well, one of the most important things about being a leader is being able to make hard decisions, about being able to say no. Um, choice was the third dimension. That was the ability to narrow the focus on yourself and other people and, and say no to even good ideas so that the ideas you have committed to can prevail. And the last was, not surprisingly, connection. These are, uh, were the people, everybody knows someone like this and everybody wants to be around them. These are the people who, when you're in their presence, you just know you're gonna become better. They're gonna, they're gonna bring out the best in you. They're smart, they're credible, they're kind. Um, you, you, you wanna follow them. And whether they're, it's bosses or peers or people below them, whoever they're with, they are credible, they're um, trustworthy. And interestingly enough, in our research, the people in that, in that, uh, who were successful with that, they prioritized their stakeholders not by who they could get something from, but whose success they could contribute to. They focused their relationship building on places they could contribute, not places they could get something. And so you knew if you were in their presence, um, you were going to learn. Your, your, your needs, your agenda, your development was going to be a priority to them. So for all of us, it, you know, do the people in your life, in your world, in your customer base, in your organizations believe that when they're around you, their best interest is really what you hold? Um, or do they wonder about that? So um, uh, context, breadth, choice, and connection, all really hard things. The hard part about the research was um, the exemplar group was good at all four of them. So if you look at three of the four of them, you were in the failure group. You had a master all four of them. The great news is they're all learning. You can cultivate those capabilities as early in your career as you are and keep building on them. That's very interesting. I really, I, that really resonated a lot with me, what you said about uh, being in the presence of somebody that clearly you can see or you can feel is invested in you, who is looking for the opportunities to uh, really to contribute and uh, that, that shows up in a lot of different ways. That's, that's very interesting. I haven't directly thought of it in that way before, but that's really interesting. Yep. And, right. and we all know people, you know, when you meet them and you think that they want something from you and you feel guarded and closed um, versus the people you instantly realize they care. I mean, I matter to them. I know what's important to me is important to them. And that, again, would seem like it relates back to that that mission and knowing what maybe not the mission but the knowing your statement of identity knowing what that that particular focus is that way also i guess like you said is that you would be able to say no and you would be looking for the opportunities to reinforce that in whatever way that you can so it seems like it comes right back to that as well as a as a foundational piece for sure so from here, for anybody that does want to connect with you, obviously you have uh, you know many books that are available. I uh, have uh, you know uh, TEDx talks that are available to to view as well. What would be the best way for somebody to to be able to reach out to you and connect with you? Yeah, I'd love to keep in touch and keep chatting. So if you come to our website, uh, navalent, N-A-V-A-L-A-N-T.com, 
they've got all kinds of videos and articles and great rich blogs and all kinds of material content on leadership and organizations and teams and you know personal self-development um, if you're happy to be leading some type of change in your world we have a free ebook on leading transformation and it's, you can come and get that at navlin.com slash transformation. Uh, also on my Twitter at, at Ron Carucci, and I'm also on LinkedIn, so please do stay in touch. Well, that's phenomenal. Well, thank you so much, Ron, for your for your time today. Uh, we'll be able to, to round it out there. Thank you very much. Errol, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of Errol Helps Entrepreneurs Increase Visibility, Credibility, and Profitability. If you enjoyed the conversation today and you find yourself wanting more, there is. These conversations are recorded live in our closed Facebook community for entrepreneurs called LinkedIn Mastery. Head on over to Facebook for LinkedIn Mastery to find the extended clip of this recording along with many other conversations and resources to help you in your entrepreneurial journey. Just be sure to replace the why at the end of Mastery with three E's and join us at LinkedIn Mastery. Enjoy this sneak peek of the upcoming episode. And if you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe so you get first notification of all upcoming episodes. And if you really like us and you want to help more people hear us, be sure to write a review, a five-star review, and let everybody know how Errol helps entrepreneurs. Be able to define it, whatever your idea is, very easily. Why buy is ad-free clickable video. If you see something in a video you like, you can click on it and buy it immediately. You know, like you have a pretty good idea of what I'm talking about. It's like YouTube, except there's no ads. You can click on things in the video, buy it immediately. If you have a cool idea, be able to explain to somebody pretty easily and ask 10 people if more than half of them think it's pretty cool, then do your homework. There's a lot of tools out there. Google, do a lot of marketing research, right? Like know what the market looks like. Um, know your competition. And then as a product manager, building a software product, I follow an agile methodology, which I like because it's very non-technical. And I'm, I'm, I'm not a technical person. I just like to hang out with people. But um, like, don't do a bunch of steps. Just do the one thing today, right? Like they say that like to-do lists, to be effective, don't write 10 things on your to-do list. Just write a couple. If you complete them, put some other ones. But to get started, if you have a really cool idea, Maybe your only thing for the day, try to explain my idea to 10 people tomorrow in an easy way. Just leave it at that. Then the next day, you know, find right on your to-do list for today, uh, research 10 companies that do something similar. That's it. This episode is brought to you by LinkedIn Mastery where entrepreneurs go to network and learn how to attract their ideal clients via LinkedIn and broker powerful connections worldwide. Be sure to visit us at LinkedIn Mastery on Facebook. Be sure to replace the why 
with three E's and join us at LinkedIn Mastery.